Hello and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. Jim Elliott is away today. Uh, today in the studio we have Jack Cutmore Scott joining us. Hello, Jack. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for being with us. Jack Cutmore Scott is an accomplished British actor who has starred in the ABC series Deception and in the feature films such as Dunkirk and others. Jack has an impressive list of Broadway credits that include Cyrano de Bergerac and Arcadia, among others, and he has starred as Claudio in Much Ado About Nothing at Shakespeare in the Park uh, in 2014 for director Jack O'Brien. Welcome, Jack! Thank you. Uh, you know, I saw that production of Much Ado in the Park. Um, I, so much has happened since 2014 in the world, and Claudio is a is a difficult guy to love. He he really is, yeah. Even yeah. more difficult in in today's climate. What was that experience like? I mean, it was a wonderful experience. Obviously, getting to do Shakespeare in Central Park is is pretty much top of my list and has been for a while. So that was very cool. And obviously, Jack O'Brien is an institution in his own right. So the whole the whole experience was, was pretty great. Claudio himself is, as you say, he's a he's a difficult one. I I took the approach that he's he's not the sharpest tool in the shed, and he he has a good heart, but it's just easy to manipulate and frequently pointed in the wrong direction. Which I think is that was sort of how I justified an awful lot of what he was doing. He a cloud of of confusion more than more than anything else. It makes a lot of sense, and I think when it's done well, as, cer as certainly you did, it's it's easier to forgive Claudio for his actions than it is to forgive Shakespeare for sort of I insisting that we do so. At <laughs> <laughs> different times, I think, yeah. It, we're always viewing Shakespeare through the lens of the times that we're in. And that's a great segue to this recent project of yours, Hamlet 360, Thy Father's Spirit, which was featured in a recent New York Times article called Hamlet in Virtual Reality Casts the Viewer in the Play. Can you tell us about that project? Absolutely, yeah. It was well, Steve Mailer, who is the artist director of Commonwealth Shakespeare up in, in Boston. He approached me about it because he had a pre-existing relationship with, with Google and their VR department. And obviously his mission has always been bringing Shakespeare to as large an audience as possible. And that's what they do in the park up in Boston every year. And this particular medium, which is still very much in its sort of very early stages, seemed like an exciting new way to bring, to, to scale his mission even further. And essentially what we did was we, well, he cut down Hamlet to about an hour the version that we used ended up being about an hour. And we rehearsed for five days, which obviously for uh, film and TV is a luxury and for theatre is uh, abhorrent and terrifying. <laughs> um, but, and then we shot for five days. And essentially the, the idea, the, the premise, um, is that you will take the place of, of Hamlet's father's ghost. You are in his ethereal shoes and you get to watch the action, the, the abridged action of the play, play out around you. So we were dealing with this new piece of kit, the, the VR 360 camera, which essentially was, you know, in rehearsal, Steve would just stand where the camera was going to be, because that was the best way of getting an idea as a director of what the show would actually look and feel like. And then on the day, we had to perform around this bizarre UFO looking on a tripod style thing and uh, yeah, and create a kind of mini version of, of this world. He is very much focused on the father son relationship and creating, try, as you said, trying to put the, the audience member um, into the world of the play in a way that 
tries to combine the best of theatre in the round, if you think of it in that way, and and film. It's a fascinating uh, undertaking, but let, let, I want to back up a little bit because you, you mentioned that your rehearsal period was only five days. That seems yeah. that seems pretty daunting. It me. was, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it was. I'm not going to lie. It was a little. I mean, Steve and I talk, had been talking about it for a couple of months prior to rehearsal. So obviously, in my particular position, I, I had to show up off book otherwise it would have been a train wreck and the i think the biggest challenge is have, having done hamlet once before was actually remembering the cuts more, more <laughs> than the lines and tr- really trying to reshape it for the world that he and, and clint ramos who is a production designer had created how did you prepare on your own before the before the rehearsal process began uh, steve was incredibly generous with his time and we had a bunch of skype conversations we talked stuff through i i came into it reasonably well armed having done it in college and having it always having been one of my favorite if not my favorite plays so i've put in the hours of thinking about it prior to this project and what we got to do again over skype from new york to la was just talk through how his vision was going to work and how i could align my own interpretation of the play with with his and you've done uh, quite a bit of feature film as well as television a a five-day shooting schedule for 60 plus minutes of material how does that how did you manage that it's well it's very unusual the medium itself so essentially as you see if you watch it each take if you will, each scene can be as much as six, seven, eight, even longer minutes long, uh, which is obviously unheard of for the most part in film or television. And there's no going in for coverage. There's no, oh, I messed up that line. Let's go back and take that one again, because we have to go all the way through. And not only is there no opportunity for pickups or, you know, multiple takes, there's no strolling off camera. You know, there's no, because the audience has a 360 degree perspective, you can't just slip behind the camera and get off screen. And you also can't really control where your audience member is looking. So we had to all be on the same page throughout and really keep the ball in the air for each take. And as soon as there was a screw up, we had to start again. And it's an awful lot of setup because again, any crew member could not be visible. Um, they couldn't hide behind camera. They had to go and hide behind a wall um, somewhere. And a lot of the cast were visible for a lot of the show. Uh, if not in the action, then, you know, if when you've got your goggles on, you turn around and look in the other direction, you might see Brooke Adams on the bed with her own blocking and everything going on, you know, in the background, if you will. So the biggest challenge was really keeping everybody on the same page and in the same world for these long takes because we didn't physically didn't have enough time to do very many takes and uh, there's no stopping and starting. So It sounds like it combined maybe the most fatiguing and stress-inducing aspects of both uh, film and live performance. That's certainly how it felt on the day. <laughs> <laughs> but now that you've had a chance to see the finished product, how, did, how does it compare with what you had uh, envisioned? I love it. I think it's very impressive. I think it's a crazy new medium and it'll be very exciting to see what people can do with it going forward this was really this is i think well at the time of shooting anyway this was the longest live action uh, vr project and not to mention using a classical text so we were very much at the forefront of trying to figure out how this medium is going to work so it was it was really everyone kind of figuring it out 
on the job and looking back I mean I'm kind of my own worst critic so I I think that there are a few things I would have done differently only because the medium itself is so unusual so for example if you are three to four feet well, so say yeah, three to four feet from the camera the quality of the of the focus of the camera is such that it's very similar to being in a close-up on a TV show or a film. So the level of detail in your face, how how small the performance can be, correlates pretty closely to cinema. However, if you are more than four feet away from the camera, it's a bit more like you're up on stage in a you know a Broadway uh, theater with regards to how much more you have to be in your body, how how much bigger the performance has to be for things to be communicated clearly to the audience member, which on the day you just don't know. And you also, it's hard to keep track of how close you are to the camera in certain moments and to um, manipulate your performance accordingly. But it was it was hugely educational to look back and be like, oh, okay, I see, I see how it works now. I want to take another go. <laughs> <laughs> so, so having done it once, you're ready for to do it again for the Scottish I'd love to do it. Yeah, I think that it. I think the opportunity there is so exciting because you, as you say, you really get to immerse the audience member fully in the in the play or the or the piece. Do you um, have the sense that you're you're on the vanguard of something something new, or that that this was an interesting project that will that will not be replicated? I really hope that it is replicated. I think that as the technology improves, we're talking about it with the sensorium guys who were the guys behind the, the VR magic, and they're saying that you know the quality of the file of the footage um, is so high that it's too high for the tech that we have to go with it. So, for example, everything is in 4K or HD or whatever, right, in these cameras. Now, normally we're used to watching that on our screen with one of those cameras in action at a given time. There were 16 or 17 of these cameras shooting at the same time. So if you imagine how big that file is going to be, you won't get high enough resolution watching it now so it feels a little bit like we're not quite there you know we're sort of in a few years you'll be able to watch this on your phone and it'll really feel like you are on set with us so in that sense it definitely felt like we were wading into a pool and nobody really knew how deep it was yet you've worked on projects of high profile projects certainly had a lot of resources behind them but have you ever worked on anything with a producer with as deep pockets as google um <laughs> that's a good question i mean i don't think that you know i think steve is is really the, the guy who who had this vision and who persuaded google to uh to give it a shot because they are keen to make to make more projects like this to develop this space figure out where how it's marketable figure out if people are interested it's still as you say very much the vanguard of of this technology so i think for them it was as much an experiment in the medium as it was a a creative endeavor in its own right so i think steve very cleverly managed to make it so that we could align those two agendas uh, very nicely so that felt that we were doing something special. And the production, as you say, is notable not only for the technological innovation which shapes the way that the viewer experiences the play, but also for its production design, for example, its brevity and its particular point of view. Can you speak to those other elements which make this production unique? Yeah, absolutely. I, I won't forget the first time I saw the set. And it was, uh, so Clint Ramos, who was, it was a very well-known set designer, production designer, he did all the whole set, the whole, all the costumes. And we we took over a, an abandoned vaudeville theater on Staten Island for the week. And 
essentially he filled it with this incredible set that is it's sort of uh, the idea behind it i believe was that it's composed or comprised of a lot of clutter and confusion to it but everything has a, a kind of a cohesive purpose so the whole show takes place within this cavernous space but it also feels very intimate because of the the more sort of localized little mini sets within the sets I think that that was a fantastic idea because what it enabled us to do was to keep the audience with us in the world of the play without disorienting them too much. Because the, the thing about VR is as soon as you change location, you have to recalibrate. It's not, it's not like with film and TV where we're used to cutting to a different place and, uh, and we can see where we're going on because we're literally being pointed at what we're supposed to be looking at. Mm-hmm. In this medium, you have to give your audience a little bit of time to reorient because they don't have a point of reference. Like they, they don't know where they should be looking. Um, so to have everything within one space helped because if you do move the audience member, they can more quickly center themselves. Like, oh yes, I recognize that. That's the bath over there. Yep. That's where I was. Okay. Now I know where I am. So it helped to make it less confusing uh, as well as I think visually quite by stunning and uh, and engaging, and it meant that whatever direction you happen to be looking in, if you find what I'm doing particularly boring, you can look the other way, and you'll see something interesting happening, you know, across the room. I imagine that that's the sort of thing that audiences may become more accustomed to as they become more familiar with experiencing narrative drama in the VR realm. I would hope so. I think that it's a fascinating element that we haven't had to. I mean, obviously some more exciting theatrical productions you get to do really cool stuff in the space of the theater but this is unique insofar as the entire the entire set the entire world is is a show so there isn't any um there's no other audience member to get in in your way or you know you you have uh, steve's sort of line was the, the thing about it is that you have the best seat in the house every show the seat is curated and designed to be the best seat in the house and you get to look wherever you want to look. And I think that's, it's pretty cool because I think of a lot of films where I'm like, ah, damn it. I wanted to stay in that room a little bit longer. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to look in the other direction to see where that guy went. And the more the virtual reality and augmented reality are developed, I think the more opportunities there will be to do really exciting things like that. A little bit of a make your own adventure um, element might come in, you know, this, they're really starting to play with, with storytelling and narratives and how we can all repurpose them and make them a bit more a bit more exciting for, for the modern age, yeah. Right. A play which admittedly is all about words, 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 is now given this new new life thanks to this fascinating new technological medium. I want to back up a little bit. So tell us about your journey as, uh, as an actor. Uh, with Shakespeare, you mentioned that you, you first encountered Hamlet as an actor in college. Was that your first exposure to Shakespeare? In high school as well. I wasn't an, an actor, actor uh, in, in high school. I did some, some plays and then I did a year at Lambda in, in London before college. So I kind of, Shakespeare was really my way in to theatre and acting and this entire world just because I was more of an English student than I was a performer. So I've always had a special place in my heart for it because I've felt like it was that Shakespeare, Shakespeare and verse specifically was my, my conduit into this bizarre career that I find myself in. That's fascinating. You know, you, you say that Shakespeare was your, your entree into 
into acting, but I think most uh, most people will know you for your non-Shakespearean roles. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it's it's one of those things. I I, um, I feel very lucky to have gotten to to have the opportunity to do a bunch of different things already, and I'm incredibly grateful to Steve that we got to do this last year because I was starting to get that itch to do. <laughs> do a play or do some Shakespeare and or something in that world and this he got he managed to fit it into 10 days for me so that was, <laughs> that was pretty cool. so the speech that you've that you've chosen to share with us today is from Hamlet and it's from act one scene two it's it's quite a well-known speech but for those of us um, those of us who might be fa- not be so familiar with it what is this speech about and and where does it take place um, obviously, it's, it's very, very early on. It's one of our one of our early introductions to to the character of Hamlet and his dilemma. And I think if it were a modern TV show or film, this this would be the the clumsy exposition scene <laughs> where we have the character lay everything out for us uh, as as clearly as possible. And uh, it, it has a special place for me because I actually this was the first Shakespeare monologue that I ever or soliloquy that I ever learned. And it was for a, um, a declaration competition in oh, high yeah. school, but also mainly amusing because I skipped half of it while doing it. And in, in the final round of this competition, I managed to jump up, I think, five or six lines. And the, the judge didn't realize, which was great. And I ended up <laughs> winning it by the fact that I hadn't actually recited a, a fair chunk of it. So I thought it would only be fitting to to do that chunk, and um, you know, so I I can prove that I do actually know it. That's great. I love this speech because if if you didn't know the name of the play and and were just suddenly you know sitting there watching it, you, you'd be forgiven for thinking maybe that uh, Hamlet is a secondary character until this moment when um, when he speaks and he has the stage all to himself. So uh, who's he who's he talking to? Well, that I suppose that depends on your interpretation a little bit. Given that it is a soliloquy, he is alone on stage, and he is, one might say, thinking out loud, or if you're of more religious persuasion, he is really addressing God. He does, in the, in the text, address God directly. My, my feeling only because that's where I come from and how I function myself is that this is more of a trying to get his thoughts in order, trying to really lay it out for himself so that the confusion and emotion and tumult of the last couple of months, last few months, are clarified in his own mind a little bit so that he really knows why he's so upset and what he's thinking and feeling and what he's going to do going forward. Uh, Not that he reaches any kind of coherent conclusion, but I think to, yeah, that was... In Hamlet 360... Um, is it treated as a as a direct address to the to the camera or or to the audience? Actually, in um, in three hundred and sixty, Horatio is on stage. He's in the in the scene with Hamlet. So there's an element of throughout throughout Hamlet three hundred and sixty, there is an element of Horatio playing the role of what might be more conventionally uh, staged as Hamlet in soliloquy or talking to himself, he is addressing this to Horatio. Oh, well, that puts a different spin on things, doesn't it? As an actor, I would think that that would be pretty helpful. Uh, to- I, it was, I really liked it. I didn't, again, we didn't do the whole uh, soliloquy 
we, it was a heavily abridged version of it, but I did like that version because it's, it is more dynamic, obviously, as we know, to, to have somebody else to play off, to persuade and to inform rather than to stand up pontificating on stage. So I like that version of it a lot. Well, we'd love to hear it if you sure. care to share it with us. This is Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 2. Oh, the this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a dew. Or that the everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. Oh, God. God, how weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. Fie, aunt, ah, fie, tis an unweeded garden that grows to seed. Things rank and gross in nature possess it merely. That it should come to this, but two months dead. Nay, not so much, not two. So excellent a king that was to this Hyperion to a satyr, so loving to my mother that he might not between the winds of heaven visit her face too roughly. Heaven and earth, must I remember? Why, she would hang on him, as if increase of appetite had grown by what it fed on, and yet, within a month, let me not think on Frailty, thy name is woman. A little month, or ere those shoes were old, with which she followed my poor father's body like Niobe, all tears. Why, she, even she, oh! God, a beast that once discourse of reason would have mourned longer, married with my uncle, my father's brother, but no more like my father than I to Hercules within a month. And yet the salt of most unrighteous tears had left a flushing in her galled eyes. She married, oh, most Wicked speed to post with such dexterity to incestuous sheets. It is not, nor it cannot come to good. But break my heart, for I must hold my tongue. Thank you. Yeah? That is fun, isn't it? It is. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> what a treat to be able to to do that. I, I really enjoyed your interpretation of it. And in this podcast, we like to dig into some nerdy stuff. So if you'll indulge me here. Yes. Yeah. So it's all about the, the text with, with Shakespeare. What are some of the things that you find in the text that are particularly fun to dig your, to dig your teeth into as an actor? Yeah. I mean, it's, I love this because the way in which Shakespeare plays with the verse in this particular soliloquy it has always struck me as being very very true to how we think and feel and how we respond to emotions in real time it's he's, he's trying to process he's trying to rationalize trying to think his way through stuff but stuff keeps popping into his head it, it keeps interrupting his his thought processes and sending him you know it's all it's all within the theme of what's happening in his in his brain but he keeps getting hit by you know specifically you know a, obsession with how quickly this has happened 
and uh you know the, the a little month a little month within a month two months you know how much it is and it's all it's all a bit confused and confusing and he being shakespeare i think replicates that confusion and that chaos i love that so, idea the idea of using the verses as, as a as a launching pad or as a trampoline rather than being um shackled to it it is especially in this one i just if you looking at the the text itself you'll see that there are so many sentence endings within a line, which is, it, you know, it makes the verse jolty and and feel like it's it, he's off kilter. You know, something is really not right, and he keeps his breath isn't coming right. Everything is not flowing in the way that you know a lot of Shakespearean verse will flow, and I think that's. Um, that's really evocative of, of how he's feeling. Many actors approach those midline endings differently. When you see a midline ending, particularly in this speech, what does it what does it uh, do for you in terms of your of your technique and your your instincts and your training? Yeah, I mean, I've had this conversation a lot. It's I don't I don't think you should be we should be scared of them. I don't think that my personal opinion is I don't think Shakespeare would would have been as obsessive about the the scansion as some schools of thought would have him be. I think that. It's a wonderful, beautiful rhythm to build the world in. And when he plays against it, he does so intentionally. You know, the natural cadence of our pentameter is such that our ears tune into it. We can follow it. Even, even when the words might not be familiar to an audience, we can follow the meaning so, so effectively because of the rhythm and the cadence. And when he's doing stuff like this, when the, the ending's in the middle of the line, he's, he's screwing around with, the the cadence and the, and the flow i think that's i think we should pay attention to that i think that we should use it and it doesn't mean that you take a big breath in the middle of the line necessarily but it does mean that it's a change in direction or it means it's a change in thought or it means that he wants you to engage with the idea that there are multiple different thoughts happening at the same time we don't all think in a linear fashion we you know it's not always that we think our way through one problem and then address the next and that's definitely true for hamlet he's the whole a big part of this entire play is that he's trying to grapple with <laughs> like existential crises of, of multiple multiple types one thing that i love about this speech is that it, it's so accessible the language is is really available to all uh, audiences you don't have to be a scholar to understand what's what's going on and what's being said there may be a few instances where there are some references to mythological figures which may be obscure to some like hyperion and niobe of course we we're all familiar with uh, Hercules and some of the language may be a little archaic like between the winds or galled eyes or to post with such dexterity to incestuous sheets but the thing that's great about this speech is that that's um, that's all secondary we don't seem to get hung up on that because we're so invested in in Hamlet as a person and what he's going through and trying to communicate and desperately struggling to assimilate is this your favorite of the speeches that you encounter in the play? I think possibly. I um, I did I did try to fight for a bit more of it to be included uh, in uh, Hamlet 360, and Steve was very generous and, and said that you know I could have a, have a bit more because it it helps to really clarify you know as you say where he is, what his emotional status is, and and where as you say like get an idea of where he might be going from here. And I think that's why as I it, you know I. So said earlier, this is where the clumsy exposition scene would be in a, in a TV show. I think of this all the time when writing because if you can make, <laughs> if you can this is, if you can make 
the backstory and the exhibition this engaging and this entertaining and this dynamic, then you've won. You know, the, as a writer, this is sort of the pinnacle of how to do that. As you say, there are references in here that are beautiful and heightened and the language is poetic. But he also, you know, he says, married with my uncle, my father's brother. You know, that just sort of really <laughs> lays it out, but it's 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 wrapped in this in this beautiful um this beautiful verse. So I I say, yeah, I think maybe maybe it is my favorite, I think, yeah. The text that you shared seems to follow very closely the text from the first folio version. Um with with a few minor exceptions, and I wonder if you wouldn't mind if we dialed in uh, on some of these things. So in the text that we'll share on our website, this would be line 334, and it's right after the reference to Niobe, where it says, why she, even she, and then in the first folio it says, oh heaven, and and in the version that you shared, it's changed to, oh God, can you speak to that choice? That's just the one that I've always known, so I I, I suppose, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't profess to, uh, to know too much about the... the, the you know, differences in the specificity between between the text and that in that particular case. But I think that a lot of what is it happens throughout the this sort of starting at the beginning that he is there is an element of him addressing the everlasting. There's this element of him battling with the fact that suicide is, you know, a mortal sin and the easy way out is not in theory an option. And it's God's fault that that is the case. Because in Hamlet's perspective, that is a very it's a sort of a rational exit uh, the, from this existential uh, dilemma, this this crisis that he's going through. He thinks that that makes sense at this point. In 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 a way, you know, there's a logical there's a logic to it, but the the blockade to the logic is God, and that he's not allowed to pursue this course of action. I think it's a little bit of a fascinating substitution here in this instance because um, I think God. God does scan a lot better. Sometimes I've, I've heard that the um, compositors would substitute, when, when you find something that scans clumsily and it's a reference to God or, or heaven, sometimes the compositors have made that substitution in order to avoid using the word God in the text. But here, uh, here in this text, you, there, there are other instances where the word G-O-D appears. So, mm -hmm. so I'm curious. I'm, I'm curious in a very, very nerdy way about why, why that... Um, why it's heaven in this instance when it when it goes against yeah. the, the scansion, but that's neither here nor there. Maybe one of our listeners can chime in on that on that point. It's a wonderful speech, and this is a very exciting project that you are engaged in. For our listeners who are interested in finding out more and viewing Hamlet 360, Thy Father's Spirit, what's their way in? How can they locate it? So the the video itself I think is available on YouTube through Boston Globe's or WGBH platform. Yeah, it, it obviously it's it's designed to watch with a sort of a headset, a VR headset, but you can get those very cheaply now and put your smartphone into it, and and it does it sort of figures it all out with an app. That uh, this is all not my area of expertise, but I can definitely <laughs> find. We'll be we'll be happy to post that link on the website. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Jack Cutmore Scott is the British actor who is starring in Hamlet 360, Thy Father's Spirit, which is available for free 
on YouTube. So check that out with your virtual reality headset. The link, of course, is available on our website, and we invite you to come and, and check it out. Thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. Good day.